Well, take your Bibles, if you would, and look with me at Luke chapter 15. Luke 15. It's such a fitting expression in song, given the fact that we have been really just stunned, frankly, at the words of Jesus in the present context that we find him in, in the 15th chapter of Luke. This really is the most amazing truth that our God does give and give and give and give, and without reproach. That is to say, if we deal with the wisdom that he gives to his people in a, in a way that squanders it, and then next time in our deepest need, we run to him, instead of trusting in our hoarded resources, he gives again, and he gives again abundantly. You know, the Christian life really is the most blessed life, and it isn't what the world might think as to the reasons. The Christian life is the most blessed life, not because Christians are completely rid of sin. We certainly are not. There is a new transforming power that is resident within the Christian, within the believer. We've been, of course, forgiven for our sin and sealed by the Holy Spirit, who now, by his indwelling power, renews our mind, helps us strengthen our faith, and, and moves us toward Christ's likeness in a way that never would have happened had we, had we remained lost. And so the Christian life is the, the blessed life, but not because that work is done. It's not because we don't sin. We sin all the time. We are weak and infirmed. Nor is the Christian life the most blessed life because somehow everything we touch turns to gold or prospers. Not at all. In fact, the Christian begins to realize that earthly prosperity is nothing. It's a zero. It's useful perhaps for a time for those that use it for the right purposes. But earthly prosperity of any kind is just an empty boast apart from Christ. We learn that. Christian life is indeed the most blessed life, but not because Christians are kept entirely protected from the pains and sorrows of this life. We agonize because of our fallen condition, just like everyone else does. No, the Christian life is not the blessed life for any of those reasons. The Christian life is the blessed life because no matter what we face in this life, we know because of what God says that we are a delight to him. That is why the Christian life is the most blessed life, because if you're a delight to the God of the universe, you cannot, therefore, be anything but blessed, even while you live here in the midst of what we face. When my kids were growing up, I would tell them that as a dad, even when they were in their most messy scenario. Hey, I want you to know that as much as I'm going to help you through this mess, as much as you might find yourself in the consequences of rebellion and the pain of those consequences, I want you to know you have never ceased to be a delight to me. Why? Because they're my children. Sin does not make them cease to be mine, and I delight in them as my children, even if I see the infirmities that they have to deal with and the consequences of sin. Well, it's no different with the heart of God. We are a delight to him, are always a delight to him. We will always be a delight to him because we belong to him. And the scriptures teach that he rejoices over his chosen people. He rejoices over his chosen people. The 105th Psalm, verse 43, says that he brought forth his people with joy and he brought forth his chosen ones with a joyful shout. There is an exuberant exclamation of delight that goes on in the heart of God, let alone reverberating throughout heaven, whenever he thinks about you if you're in Christ. 
Isaiah 62.5, which I read to you last time. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. And of course, all through the prophets, they would say this. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior, and he will exult over you with joy. What does that mean? He makes much of you. I mean, here in the Christian life, we're taught, Romans 5 says, to make much of Christ. And yet here's God through Christ, making much of his people, no matter your season of life. Listen, beloved, the Christian life is the most blessed because while we live here and now, we know that in all these experiences, in all of these situations of uncertainty, in all of the heaviest sorrows, and in all the deepest discouragements because of our weaknesses and the consequences that follow, God is rejoicing over his people. We are a delight to him. We're a delight to him because he first chose us before the foundation of the world. That's why we're a delight to him. He fixed his saving love on us before time began. And he delights in manifesting who he is to his creatures. And so he is saving lost sinners. And choosing us before the foundation of the world makes his delight rush through him all the more. He delights in the fact that he's the one that sought us out From heaven he came and sought us, so the hymn writer said. He is working out all things to gather us to himself. He delights in that work. He delights in the fact that he brought us what he has brought us in each situation that brings us to strengthened faith, working each situation to keep us and to hold us and to protect our faith and strengthen our conviction, our endurance. He delights in all of that. And even in every valley of the shadow, he delights to carry us and to bring us to ultimate peace and joy in him. In this whole work that God is doing from start to finish, he is the exuberant one. He is the delighter. He is the joyful one about every one of his children. And he rejoices in it because it puts his perfections on display. And the thing that fills the heart up of, of God up more than anything else is to, when he creates something, to shoot through it with his glory, to display himself in all of his perfections to his creatures. That is his highest and sole desire, to rejoice in the way that only a perfect and holy and eternally loving God can rejoice. And so therefore we become his delight because we are the center of that work in which he displays himself. And so it's no wonder then that the principal implication of a passage like the one in front of us where Jesus started teaching parables about the heart of God, the principal implication is that through the Spirit of God, our hearts are supposed to be filled with this same experience and exulting about the work that God does no matter the season we're in. Kingdom life, Romans 14 said, was about peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It isn't about earthly things. It isn't about eating and drinking and all the stuff that we do in life. Kingdom life isn't about that. Kingdom life is about peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And Jesus told his disciples, I spoke these things to you in the world so that my joy may be made full in you so that they may have my joy, he prayed to his heavenly Father. Look, I want them to be one so that my joy will be made full in them. I want it to explode in them. That is the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and etc. 
I don't see God yet. 1 Peter 1.8 tells me and admits what we know. I don't see God yet, but I rejoice with some sort of inexpressible undercurrent of this delight that goes on in the believer because God delights in me. That is why I can walk and get through. This theology is to affect me. It's why Jesus spoke on it so often. You say, well, pastor, these are really encouraging sentiments. They're really encouraging, but quite often they seem like distant promises to my experience on a daily basis. So often those sentiments might just fly right over our heads when we hear them, or our ears might be dull to them when we read them in Scripture, or some friend in a discipleship relationship reminds us of that truth, but it seems to us like it isn't really for me. It's not really for my life today. In other words, the questions that flood my mind are far different. How can I have that kind of joyful undercurrent in my daily experience when my life has so much uncertainty and sorrow? Can it be that the delight of God in me should affect that? Or worse, how can God delight in me when I'm so sinful and I regularly stumble into sinful attitudes and actions such that I can't imagine why God would have any mindful thought of me because no one wants to be around me on earth? That's why our Savior spoke about the heart of God so often. You remember, he would say, fear not. Okay, I don't want you to fear the earthly things that happen to you or even people that might persecute you and could kill the body uh, on earth and end your physical life. I want you to not fear if you're right with the one who can kill body and soul in punishment. If you're right with him, then do not fear. He said to his disciples, don't let your heart be troubled. Stop letting it get stirred up. Take courage, he would often say. Why? Because when you know and believe the heart of God for you, That is when, by faith, his joy begins to flood your soul right in the middle of your daily circumstances. I know this, if I know anything. I can't generate that on my own. It is a supernatural work done by God. I mean, if that kind of undercurrent of joy, not I'm not talking about uh, emotional things per se, I'm just talking about an undercurrent of rest and peace and faith and an exuberance about truth, the truth that God delights in me. I'm talking about that kind of undercurrent. For that to spread into my inner life and, and flood the desperate areas of my thirst for that kind of existence, for that to happen, I can't generate that. I have no power to do it. And yet I see it in the pages of Scripture, right? The psalmist writes, Psalm 42, verse 1, As the deer pants for water, so my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. that, that That must be the result of knowing that God delights in him, especially in seasons of weakness and sin. Beloved, that's why Jesus does what he does here. Remember last time, Jesus had 
had continued to give truth to the world, as I said. That was the first point we took from last time in these first couple of parables as a bunch of them are strung together. It was that Jesus was always speaking truth in the world to anyone indiscriminately, and outcasts and pagans who lived messy lives were coming near to him to hear him. And in the midst of that scenario, you remember, verse 2, the Pharisees and scribes were looking at it and saying, you know what? You, don't, you must not know God at all like we know him. Because if you did, you would not sit with those people and share anything with them. You wouldn't even get within an inch of them because ultimately they will defile you. They're unclean. They live unclean lives. They're not where we are. And so what Jesus does in response to the, to the discriminating, self-righteous, proud heart that thinks that they in and of themselves are enough for God... What Jesus does in response is he unpacks the heart of God. God is about taking the truth to the sinner. It isn't the well who need a physician. It is the one who knows they are sick. It isn't the one who thinks they can already see spiritual things without Christ. It's the ones who come and say, I'm blind. I can't see. I have a need. I'm bumping into sin all over the place, and guilt is running me into the ground. I need a Savior. To that person, spiritual sight comes. And so in confrontation with the Pharisees, Jesus is saying, you think you can get there on your own? Listen, you know why I sit with the tax collectors, the people that you hate, the people that you'll never give the gospel to, the reason I sit with the sinner who's messed up their life by living in rebellion to Almighty God is because there can be no other delight on the heart of God than to see sinners rescued. That is the heart of God. He delights in a rescued sinner. He delights in it. We often act like God is stingy or stuffy or uninterested in reaching out to the lost. And yet here we sit, every single one of us. If you're in Christ today, then you, you will know what Jesus teaches here about the heart of God because you experienced it. In these parables, at least the first two, there are, there are six dynamics in the heart of God that are at work and on display. There are six passions, if you will, dynamics, elements and features of the heart of God that tell us what sinners mean to him when he is reaching out to them with the gospel and saving them. And I want to give you these six. We've already been familiar with the parables. We'll just look at them uh, in certain elements of them. But the first, I already introduced last time to some degree, but we'll just sort of give it its specifics today. The first dynamic in the heart of God is that he is the seeker of sinners. He is the seeker of sinners. You know, the pragmatic movement came along years ago and created the seeker service, and, and the whole idea was that people, if they could just you know, come to a building that didn't have all the things that looked like traditional church, then their offenses would go away and their, their uh, defenses would come down and their emotional barriers would be surpassed and you could actually give them the gospel. And so we called people seekers. 
Now, I know why we did that, because there are times in the drawing process, as God is drawing a sinner because of the consequences of their sin, we will say, when we see them being drawn, hey, they, they are in desperate need and they're starting to recognize it. And so in that sense, we say they're a seeker. But until the grace of God does begin to draw someone, soften their heart, and they begin to ask you questions as a genuine seeker, they are never a seeker. Romans, 1, uh, Romans 3 rather teaches that very clearly. There are none who seek after God. Know this, there's only one seeker. It is God. God seeks true worshipers who worship him in spirit and truth, John chapter 4. It is God who is the one who seeks. It is God who seeks and saves those that are lost. And Jesus illustrates it right here in these parables. What man among you, he says to them in familiar circumstances, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, doesn't leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one? Verse 8, what woman, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully? It is God who searches carefully for that which is most precious to him. It is God who leaves the rest who are already safe and goes after the one. He's the seeker. And if you want to know how, how resolved he is, just know this. Ephesians 1.4 says that we were chosen in Christ before the world began. So in eternity past, in the mysterious sovereign grace of God, he decreed your name as one upon whom he fixed his love and sought you to make it happen. He sought you to make it happen. Oh, sure, sure. I know you lived in rebellion. You were born in rebellion, a child of wrath by nature. I know you rejected the gospel probably many times or any truth. I know that by nature you suppressed the truth. Yes, that's absolutely true. And I know from the human perspective, when the time came for your sin to be too much to bear and your guilt too heavy on your soul, somewhere in those circumstances, someone told you about Christ and you broke down and believed him by faith in the sorrow of your guilt. I know that. And when you embraced Christ, you embraced all of him with your, all, your whole inner man, faith, repentance, your motives, your affections, your will, all of it. But know this, it only happened because God sought you, because he fixed his heart on you, and those whom he predestined, he called, and those whom he called, he justifies, and those whom he justifies, he also glorifies. He called you in a time in your life, and when he called you by his spirit, he drew you. All that other stuff you saw was his work. He's the seeker. second thing we notice about the heart of God here, which is so rich, is that he doesn't stop until you're rescued. He doesn't stop until you're rescued. Jesus said he goes after the one which is lost until he finds it. And verse 8, she lights the lamp, sweeps the house, and searches carefully until she finds it. Now, I love this truth because what it tells me is that God isn't like us in the sense that when we're looking for something that's precious to us, we are limited. We sometimes are impatient. We sometimes just flat out give up. God delights in saving. He delights in seeking and saving, and 
His love is fixed on sinners, and he is saving them. And when he searches them out and seeks for them, he does not lose that search. He goes until it is done. You think about that when you think about how many times you rejected the gospel up until the day you were saved. Could not God have just simply said, I give up. You know, I've given it to you so many times. You know, I gave you Christian parents. And they weren't perfect, but they told you the truth. And all you've done is just thumb your nose at it. You know, I, I give up. You know, I gave you a Christian friends or a Christian coworker. you know, and all you do is come to church, attach yourself to it, learn the lingo, and you go out and you don't believe, you don't care. You know, I gave you resources and a place to learn and some people that loved you and a grandma who prayed for you. And you still just love yourself and the world and you think you're going to get there on your own. I just give up. No. Not God. He seeks and saves that which is lost and he seeks until he finds that sheep. And if you are here today and are in Christ, he sought you until he found you and no matter how many times you swatted his hand away, when he tried to reach out to you with the truth, no matter how many times you trampled his message of the gospel, no matter how many times you rejected and rebelled and suppressed, he was moving, he was working, he would not stop until he brought you. And every time we rejected, he'd already planned to keep coming until his power in his wisdom and grace subdued us. Think about your circumstances in which you came. It's pretty profound that, that he never gave up. I, I, I cannot think about the rebellious years of my life before Christ without cringing and wincing and just thinking I, you know, people have said it many times. I've said it to my own heart. I should have been lost thousands of times. I should have been rejected, snuffed out, stomped out. And, and I grew up in church, so I lived a pretense. I could tell people about Christ. When I was an unbeliever at 16, I led some people to Jesus. And I was a pagan. Loved my life, loved myself, loved the earth, loved the world. Oh, I should have been lost permanently and given over so many times. But... I was a lost sheep upon whom he'd fixed his love. And in Christ, before the foundation of the world, he delighted in me. How can this be? He does not stop until we're rescued. And then he preserves us once he has given us truth and brought us to the end of ourselves and granted faith and repentance. Then he preserves us because Jude 1.24 says... In an explosive moment of worship, Jude says, Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Stumbling in what way? Little sins? Big sins? No, that isn't the point. One day, all that will be gone. And yes, we grow in our faith and our growth in grace so that we don't stumble into sins. But the stumbling in Jude one twenty four is the stumbling in your faith, losing your faith altogether. Now unto him who is able to keep you from losing your faith. How many ways does God come around your day, the last hour, to protect your faith, to secure it, hold it, to keep you from things that would crush it, destroy it? Oh, listen. <laughs> he kept 
Peter from experiencing those things before it was time. He let a little bit of rope out, and, and Peter hung himself pretty quick. And Jesus was praying for Peter because Satan directly asked for an opportunity to sift Peter like wheat. And Jesus said, but I've prayed for you, Peter, that your faith wouldn't fail. Oh, Peter failed, but his faith ultimately was not snuffed out. That was Jesus protecting him. I'm sure Satan hated it, just like he hated it with regard to Job. The only reason Job worships you is because you keep him from faith-crushing things that I could do to him. And God said, no, when I grant faith to somebody, I will preserve it. Go ahead. You can have everything but his life, and he'll still worship me because when I grant faith to somebody, I preserve it. Listen, God delights in his people because he grants us faith, and then he preserves it and protects it. Even in the garden when the disciples were there with him and they wanted to take on the guards, Jesus said, guys, put your swords away. I could call legions of angels. They could take care of this problem right now. And as he gave his hands to the ropes, he, he said to the men, who, who do you want? You want Jesus of Nazareth? Then let these go. And in John's gospel, it records that he said this because of those that the Father had given him, he lost none of them. They didn't lose their faith because he didn't make them walk through it. The Spirit hadn't yet come. Jesus was going to be arrested and be away from them. He was protecting their faith until the Spirit came and in the book of Acts and they could stand and go to martyrdom without losing their faith. He protected them. If you are in Christ, he is preserving your faith you say, yeah, pastor, but my faith is weak sometimes, terribly weak. I fall into these terrible patterns, and I have these areas of my life that I don't honor him, and there are these weaknesses that I keep facing, and I don't face them well. Yes, and even in those things, he is keeping you from losing it all. He seeks and saves that which is lost, and he doesn't stop until you're fully rescued. And I don't mean fully rescued in conversion. That's the beginning of it. I mean fully rescued all the way in the end unto glory. Peter writes of this very thing, and he just rejoices in it and says, this is supposed to affect the way you live. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 1, 3, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope which is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then look at this string of phrases. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, that is to say it can't be thwarted, it can't be killed, it can't be done away with. God gave it, it is ours. And it's undefiled, that means it, our sin cannot defile our inheritance. It's guaranteed in the righteousness of Christ. And it will not fade away. That means it, it is an eternal inheritance. It never has some diminishing returns. It's always at its zenith forever. And it is reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation about to be revealed in the last time. No wonder Peter says, in this, you greatly rejoice, even if you're distressed by various things right now. Of course. My God delights in me. That's why I rejoice. And these parables teach that he's the seeker and he doesn't stop till we're rescued. Number three, in the heart of this God who has rescued us, number three, the dynamic is that he's tender in his dealings with us. He's tender in his dealings with us. Look at, look at this imagery 
the shepherd leaves the 99 in the open pasture, goes after the one which is lost until he finds it, and when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. You know, it's that great image of the wandering sheep. You know, there we are, stubborn. He's found us in the gospel. And uh, he sees that we've wandered off again and you know, we don't always go where the food is. We kind of get on the fringes. We wander off. What does he have to do? He comes and he finds us again to preserve our faith. And as I said, and, and then he picks us up. And sometimes he's, he's got to do some things to teach us. You know, you might come out of a season of weakness with some scars. Some scars that are painful scars. And they're reminders to you by the infinite love and grace of God to not wander from his resource, ever. And in the image of a shepherd, he picks the sheep up and puts it around his shoulders because, he, and he holds the legs together. You know that old picture that you saw? That's, that goes back centuries, that old image. I have a wooden carving of it that you can get in Israel. You have a, sort of the shepherd, and the sheep is over his shoulders, and he's holding the legs closed. Why? Because if you let the legs of a sheep wander, he goes where he shouldn't go. And sometimes God has to wound. Sometimes he might dislocate an area of your life so that you feel the pop of that area every time you start to drift. This is his tender care of us. He's tender. He, he works the things in your life and my life that we need in such a way that it doesn't crush our faith, but it also teaches the lessons it needs to teach. He's so meticulous when I disciplined my kids when they were young, I, I, I did the best I could, you know? Uh, but I was just an earthly dad. Half the time, I, I, I just was acting on a principle from Scripture and on faith. I, I had no idea what the years ahead would hold, and often I would come away from a struggle with one of my children and think, am I doing this right? Why is that? Because I'm finite. I'm limited. I... I don't know all the time what goes on. I can't, I'm not omniscient. I can't always see when I'm away from them what's going on. So I come in, try to assess the situation and discipline them as seemed reasonable to me. And the writer of Hebrews admits that. We had earthly fathers who disciplined us as seemed best to them. That's right. Sometimes I was wrong. You know, sometimes I was wrong. I, I disciplined when they might have been innocent and... Of course, I told them, you know, that just evens the score because they get away with a lot, you know. <laughs> they never liked it when I would say that. That's just the Lord getting, you know, getting his way in your life to even the score. But God's discipline is tender. And notice what the writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews, Hebrews 12, he disciplines us for our good only for our good, always for our best, so that we may share in his holiness. Whatever he's doing to bring me back, it's, it's because he delights in me sharing in the thing that will give me life, that will keep me safe, protected. You know, when your kids are really young and they're ignorant of the dangers around them, you don't hesitate. This is for your own good. Yeah, your three-year-old believes that. Are you kidding? They want what they want. 
and it could threaten their life. And so you don't hesitate, nor do you give them an option. No option. That is danger. Why, mommy? I'm not telling you why. Just believe me. Trust me. I can't explain it to you. You don't understand physics. You have a, you have a problem with depth perception. And you don't know that that stuff that you're in will be cut and start bleeding. There's all kinds of things you don't see. You don't give them an option. God doesn't give us an option. He always disciplines tenderly according to our needs that we might always share in his holiness. And though it doesn't seem joyful but sorrowful, the writer says, yet those who've been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Jesus is saying in the parable that he is rescuing the lost sinner. And along the way, there is this this joy and delight in doing it according to the needs of the sheep. Why? Because he knows our need. And then fourth, the dynamic in the heart of God is he's always declaring our preciousness to him. So he is the seeker. He doesn't stop until we're rescued. He's tender in his dealings, and he's always declaring our preciousness. That's the lost coin parable. She searches carefully until she finds it. When she's found it, she calls her friends and says, Rejoice, I've found the coin that was lost. This is a precious treasure. In the parable, it speaks of what is most valuable, what is most precious, what will provide the the best and brightest of all that she's saved and safeguarded. This isn't about inherent value in a sinner. This is about what God decides to treasure. And he loves what he treasures, and he loves to protect and guard what he treasures, and he goes after what he treasures. He's always in these things declaring our preciousness to him. Back to the discipline passage of Hebrews 12. It is for the discipline of God that we endure because God treats you as sons, legitimate children. You know what the writer of Hebrews says? If you are without that kind of precious, tender treatment from a holy God, you're not a legitimate child of God. If you go through life and you, you have no knowledge of it, no eyes of faith to see it, and absolutely no God working all things for good on your behalf, you are not a legitimate child. And yet if it's opposite that, if you are enduring trials and yet it is producing a sharing in greater holiness, it's doing good in training you in righteousness and it's bearing peaceful fruit, you know that's the hand of God telling you you're a legitimate child. He delights in his children. You know, all we do is complain about it. And the writer says, have you forgotten what the scriptures say, that he disciplines those whom he loves? That he gives painful consequences for sin to those whom he has already received and is receiving? You're a legitimate child if he is going through those things with you. He's declaring your legitimacy, your preciousness. I love that about our God. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship. I mean, that, that ought to blow our minds. I'm his workmanship? That's right, an ongoing work of God in which he delights. He is looking for the lost coin because he treasures it. It is precious to him. Love it, you're precious to him. When Jesus was with his disciples, he said to his father in that prayer, I was keeping them in your name The name which you've given me, I gave to them. They've believed it, that I've come from you and have been sent from you. They are now your children because you gave them to me and I've given them all the knowledge that you told me to give to them. And while I was with them, I was keeping them 
in the preciousness of that relationship, and now I'm about to leave. So, Father, you keep them. They're precious to the Father. They're precious to the Son. You're his workmanship. Don't you think that your weaknesses shock him? Don't you think that your finite infirmities, your lack of understanding, your ignorance of Scripture, the things you still have to learn, the many, many times you think you're really strong and then you fall flat on your face, the other times when a friend admonishes you and you're rebellious, but then you come back later with greater scars, don't you think for a moment that in any of that you're not precious and the workmanship of God? He uses all of it. Yes, you ought to come away from those things. It is terrible to have to live with scars that we did not have to have. But know this, he delights in his workmanship. And we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God had already planned and prepared beforehand that we would walk in those things. This is our great God. This is the heart of God. This is what we mean to him. He's the seeker. He doesn't stop till we're rescued. He's tender in his dealings. Like Psalm 32 said, I'll counsel you with my eye upon you. That he, wonderful Hebrew phrase, which means I know every aspect of your life down to the motives and intentions of the heart. And according to who you are at this season of life, I'll counsel you. From his word comes the insights and implications from the Holy Spirit to your heart as you read his word, and in that renewal process, he gives you counsel that is tailor-made for you. Don't you love that? And out of that then comes this declaration of how precious we are. And then the parables also teach us that this fifth dynamic, that he is exuberant, over the expression of his love. He is passionate about the expression of his love. We could say it this way. He loves his gospel. He loves to put his love on display. Look, when God redeems us, he's not doing it um, ultimately, though this is related, but he's not ultimately doing it because you and I are in pain and in great need and God just ought to get rid of everybody's pain. That's not why he does it. If he saves none of his creatures, two things are true. He is still holy and just, and yet secondly, he will not have manifested a part of his character that he wanted to manifest to his creatures. If he saves no fallen sinner and they all are judged for all eternity, those two things are still true. He is holy and just, never once being unfair in it. And secondly, however, he will never have displayed parts of his perfections that he wanted to display to his creatures. He loves to display who he is to his creatures. And if he was going to display love and mercy of a divine kind, then he was going to do it by rescuing fallen sinners. He loves the expression of love in redemption that comes from his heart. He loves to see it on display. He loves to pour it out on fallen creatures because it fully manifests just how loving he is, just how merciful he is, just how much grace upon grace upon grace gets given over and over again. He loves to display those things about himself. And when his creatures see it and are filled with the joy of it, he delights in you having that experience. He delights in it. He delights 
at the reality that you realize in the gospel that no matter that you're still a sinner, you're completely forgiven for all sins, past, present, and future, and will be a co-heir with Christ, a joint heir with Christ in all that has been procured in salvation. He loves that thought. He loves that thought that, that you were born a rebel and nothing would change you. You were always going to choose sin, always going to choose to suppress God and suppress um, the knowledge of him in unrighteousness. He loves the idea that when that was true of you, he in his saving power overcame all of that. He loves the fact that when the light came into the world, darkness does not overpower that light. He loves the reality that Satan accuses the brethren day and night, and yet he, with every conversion, just continues to mock the power of evil and demonstrate it as completely impotent in the face of grace. He loves that because it demonstrates what he always wanted to demonstrate and why he created Adam and Eve in the first place, to display who he is to them and have them bask in it, love it, trust him, turn to him, depend upon him, believe in him, and just glory in who he is. That's what he did it for. And so every conversion puts his perfections on display in ways that would never have happened. He loves that. So what does that mean for you and I? I mean, that's the whole reality here. He loves to go after one that was lost. Look at verse 7. I tell you in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. There it is. There's the implication. A sinner who repents? Read the line again. A sinner who repents? It's impossible. It is literally impossible in human terms with earthly resources for a sinner to repent. It will never happen on our own. And yet, look at it. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner that repents. That means God is the one that makes that happen. And verse 10, all heaven rejoices in the presence of the angels who are also rejoicing over one sinner who repents. Of course, God is exuberant over the expression of his love when he overpowers a dead heart, quickens it to life, and they turn to God. The curse is reversed. Satan is mocked. The power of evil is, is rendered what it is. It's nothing. Where sin abounded, Grace did all the more abound. This is our God. And then, of course, that should have pointed them to the sixth aspect of the heart of God, that he loves to put his son on display. He loves to put his son on display. Jesus was sitting with sinners and outcasts. And the Pharisees were saying, well, you can't be the Messiah because you're sitting with them. And Jesus told these parables to teach the heart of God. That means that Christ is at the center of the heart of God. And God loves to put his son on display because his son is at the heart of this entire work of mercy and grace and love. In other words, God delights in you because he delights in his son. You know, sometimes I think about that when I look at the course of my Christianity and think, you know... We don't keep score because I, I'm, I'm in Christ, so I'm justified in him. I can't be acceptable based upon any work I do. But if I were to look at a scorecard of how thankful I've been and whether my life demonstrates a, a, a Christ-likeness worthy of his name, it's not a scorecard I want to look at. 
And when I look at that, I have to realize that when the father looks at me, he looks at his son and the fact that I'm in his son. And so his love for his son is projected on me. It permeates me. It is put upon me. And he loves his son. Jesus said it in John 5. The father loves the son and is showing him everything that he himself is doing so that you may marvel Greater works will the Father do than even the miracles you see the Son doing in his earthly ministry. Greater works. What kind of works? Conversions of dead hearts globally for generations. That's the greater work so that you may marvel. Why did the Father do it? Because he loves the Son. And if I'm in the Son, he loves me. If he delights in his Son, he delights in me. And when the Spirit came, John 15, 26, he bears witness of the Son. John chapter 16, verse 24, he, he manifests the Son. The Spirit of God empowers the believers so that we might live like the Son. The Father loves the Son, and so he delights in the Son, and therefore he delights in everyone who is in his Son. Jesus speaks these parables about himself. He's the rescuer. He's the one through which repentance then is brought to genuineness. He's the one object of faith upon which a sinner rests and finds forgiveness. And if we were to just sort of pull the last dynamics out of these parables, the shepherd called all of his friends and neighbors and said, rejoice with me, I found my sheep which was lost. The woman calls together friends and neighbors and says, rejoice with me, I found the coin which I lost. Look, there is to be in the heart of God's people an undercurrent of unchanging, unending delight in these truths. It doesn't change the emotional pain you're feeling in any circumstance you're in. It doesn't change the heartache that comes, the sorrow that comes when you're under the consequences of your own weakness and sin. But the undercurrent is exactly that. I know I was lost. I've been rescued. I know God delights in me. I have no idea how to make sense of that other than his character. God loves his gospel. And so ought to we love his gospel. That's amazing to me. And when you rehearse how God brought you, is that, how, is that what you know about God? Is that what you believe about God? That you're in the dead center of these parables? You're the lost sheep whom he found and wouldn't stop till he found you? You're the precious coin that he searched high and low to find until he found it. And then all heaven rejoiced when you repented. Did you know that heaven exploded in a chorus of rejoicing when you gave your heart to Christ? It's just an interesting thing. Little old me, nothing me. Yep. All heaven. All heaven and the Spirit and the Son and God himself rejoices over sinners who repent. If you're in Christ today, then he rejoices over you. You're his workmanship. You're, you're a delight to him. Strange, isn't it, given how fallen we are and how difficult our life is? Be encouraged, beloved. Be encouraged. He has not left his own. He delights in his people. He gives us everything we need for life and godliness, so we do well to seek him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you.